welcome to Sports Talk, brought to you by sportstalk.ie. I'm Denise O'Flaherty and over the past few months I've chatted to a broad range of sports stars and personalities in a nice relaxed and casual format. We've had Chris Kamara, Niall McGinn, Ray Houghton, Trevor Welch, Andy Van Nequillen. Our show is sponsored by Medell Healthcare and we would like to thank them for the continued sponsorship. This week's guest is former professional basketball player Ed Randolph. Ed, you came over to Ireland back in the 1980s to play basketball and down in Clare you found love as well. That's where you met your wife and worked in, in the local bank. I was with the chairman of the club, uh, still good friends of mine, and Dumbert is his name. He was the chairman of the club, and he was actually the coach of the team. Uh, Claremont Admirals was our local sponsor, and our logo was uh, was a butterfly that might be extinct, but it's called an Admiral Butterfly. That's well known around the burn, I think. When we went into the bank, my wife Anne was uh, one of the girls behind the desk that waited on us, and uh, Anne just sort of introduced us to this uh, new basketball player, Ed Randolph, and this is... And while she, you know, she's going to look after you. And the rest is history. I was about to say that. You were one of the first Americans to play here in Ireland. And then after that, we had so many coming in. It kind of glamorised the sport here in Ireland. I'll get slagged or I'll get, you know, corrected. If I don't sort of correct you, Denise. I was one of, like, believe it or not, a bit of a second wave of Americans. The very first uh, American players to come in and play, other than actually they're in the military or just happen to be over into college of surgeons or whatever else, the very first American players was bought over by a carry man. He's actually just got inducted to the Basketball Hall of Fame, and he was a Lord Mayor, and his name is Paddy O'Connor. At the time, he was very well known in basketball circles down there, and he was the Lord Mayor. He actually got the uh, Green Eagle Hotel to sponsor, and he put up these two guys. And the name of these two guys, two guys were a guy called Arnold Veasley, which doesn't sound like a very black American name, and another guy was Tony Andre, and they were massive, tall, huge physical specimens. I think Tony Andre was about six foot eight, easily eighteen stone, and the other guy was about six six. And he was just another physical specimen. I'm sort of one of a few guys that came, and these guys came, I think, maybe 70, 79. I didn't arrive until 1982, believe it or not, Denise. And, but a lot of articles, they say, oh, American, you know, uh, Ed Randolph, other guys, you know, the first wave of Americans to come into the country. But I always try to keep the record sort of straight, you know. These guys have to be remembered. You're from... Tallahassee and you moved to Rhode Island you got a scholarship there and I suppose for a young lad like yourself that was a great opportunity oh yeah I mean at the time you know from the time you're a young boy even young girls you you were thinking about okay you know can I get a scholarship it's more it's out of um, necessity a need because you know my mom couldn't have afforded to put me to a college as everyone knows the education system in America, it's very expensive to go to college unless you get some type of scholarship or financial aid. Even though we played a lot of sports as, as kids running around playing, you know, dodgeball and everything else, we did take sports quite seriously. And I, I took it quite seriously from, let's say, 14, 15, all the way up to 18. And I had some great role models from my older brothers 
and also my older sisters were you know pretty good athletes. You were taught so highly of in your college that they retired your jersey. Yes, I'm very fortunate, and it was only I think last year in the 2019-2020 season at uh, Roger Williams University. It was just Roger Roger Williams College when I went there. It's in Bristol, Rhode Island. The, the college is right on the the coast. As you cross what's called the Mount Hope Bridge, and the town is Bristol, Rhode Island. I mean, I've always been a people person, but uh, to meet other kids from places that you hear about in movies like uh, Poughkeepsie, yeah, um, Hoboken, for the first time, you know, our college, you know, you had some, you know, Jewish, a lot of Polish, uh, Italian, and you had these different ethnic groups, and at the time. We did have the odd protest because we had a lot of kids who were doing architectural uh, engineering, and they would have been from uh, Iran. So that was the whole time that the Shah of, of Iran was being overthrown, and there was a bit of change in the government there. How did the move to Ireland come about? Obviously, you had finished up your scholarship in the college, and I suppose then to try to get yourself noticed in the MBA. But how did the move to Ireland come about? So there's a bit of a reality check starting to come in now. I mean, you all dream, or we all dream, and we hope that we sort of can make it to the big time. But inevitably, you realize there's just only a chosen few. So I was working part-time in a nursing home. I was still around the college, and I was playing summer league. There was a refereeing friend of mine one night in Providence, after a match, just sort of said to me, uh, listen, there are some guys here and they're scouting, looking for players to play overseas. And everyone, I mean, in my years at university, we had played in different tournaments down on the coast, um, down in Falmouth, and we played in uh, Newport and also in Providence. You'd hear about players that would have played overseas, and but not, not really in Ireland. It was always... Italy, Spain, Germany, France, you know, where it would have been retired NBA players or players would go there. The, the referee, uh, we were chatting away, and I said, well, listen, you know, he said, would you be interested? I said, yeah, sure. So the, the following uh, evening we, were, we had a game. He introduced me to one of the coaches from uh, Belfast, and the club was sporting Belfast at the time. And uh, I was a guy, the coach was Fergus, uh, Fergus Woods. So Fergus, we had a little chat. It was just really sort of basic. And he said, um, we're going to be going up to, I think, Worcester, Mass, Worcester, Massachusetts. And we're going to be looking at uh, scouting another player up there. You know, we saw you play the other night and we probably want to see you play again before we go back. But we are looking for, you know, player or players. And you would suit our type of player. You could play like I guess a guard, a guard forward. So you can dribble the basketball. You can play with your back to the basket as well as face the basket. They went up to Worcester, came back, and I, they picked me. We did talk about uh, race. We talked about mm-hmm. you know there's not too many, uh, there's not too many black people now yeah. in in uh, Belfast, and uh, you know we have some uh, nurses or doctors that might be studying at uh, at Queen's University and things like that, but. Uh, he sort of a bit of a laugh even then going back to it thinking now I sort of realized it after after the fact now especially after a couple of years and I was in Belfast after a couple of weeks or months even 
which was, you know, one or two could be uh, black uh, soldiers in the uh, in the British Army. Yes. So that that was it. I finished out that summer and I returned to Florida. So in the meantime, my brother, who's actually uh, sort of idolized his brother Curtis a bit because he was very good, you know, he played basketball, football, everything. He would have been doing his undergraduate in PE at uh, FAMU University High School in Tallahassee when I was just coming in as a like uh, freshman there, first year in high school. And I was talking to him, and he was actually one who said, did they say Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland? Because you mentioned Belfast, and Belfast is in, you know, Northern Ireland, not South of the Republic. And I was like, what's the difference? <laughs> he goes, well, there's a big difference. He goes, haven't you been watching ABC News or Dan Rather on CBS? He's like, well, there's bombings in Belfast, you know, or, you know, there's a whole thing between England and Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and, you know, their people are getting killed because of their religion and I was like, religion? Because you got, whether you're a Protestant or Catholic and I was like, oh no, here we go. I said, well, mom will never be, she won't be happy with, with this at all, you know? And forget about my father because even though my mom and my, my father were separated, my father was, was very much still in our lives, you know? So, um, I was like, because if it was up to my dad, he'd go, what? Stop chasing that, you know, running after a ball. You need to settle down and get a, you know, something yeah. more concrete, uh, you know, a nine-to-five, you know, job, you know? My mom would be just a mother's, you know, a mother's love, and I was the baby of the family. She was like, oh, my God, do you really have to go, you know, like all the way over there to play basketball? Can you stay here and play basketball in, in America, you know? I had a talk back with, with, uh, with Fergus Woods, and he was like, you know, he assured me that well, obviously there's troubles now. I'm not going to lie to you, but you know, it really doesn't come into, you know, involve being involved with sports, basically, Denise. So, yeah. I sort of said to my brother Curtis and, and my other brothers and my sister at the time, could you please, everyone, something I really want to do. So, don't, don't, don't tell mom anything about the negative stuff. Just make it positive, you know. Obviously, you did hear the stories. How did you feel when you were over there? Were you apprehensive? Were you scared? Or were you kind of looking forward to what was going to happen? I was looking forward to to going over. I mean, when you were ask, when you were um, asking that question, I was I was thinking of the different stages of my life now because now I'm I'm 61, and I'm thinking, hmm. I was excited going into Belfast, excited about new adventure, playing basketball, playing professional, playing professionally, and actually getting paid to play, which is, it's, it's quite, it's quite interesting when you think about something you like to do yeah. and you're getting paid for it, which is like, it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's exciting. But when you actually start to play and you feel the pressures of, they brought me over here to play. And I'm yes. obviously one of the better players on the team and winning and scoring and, and you're promoting the game in the community as well as on the court. So all of a sudden you do feel the pressure. All right, go to trading, we come back, walk around downtown Belfast. And where I come from all of a sudden, because of my background, you start to familiarize yourself with north side of the, of the city, southwest. And then you're looking at the news and people start talking to you about the Shanko Road. 
the false road. A, yeah, an, an ordinary taxi, the black taxis. <laughs> okay, you've got you've got names, names at first to sound like a name to me, you know, Crichton, Murray, O'Kane, you know, McGlinchey. Yeah. And then you start saying, wait a second, okay, <laughs> Sovereign Ring, Clatter Ring, Protestant, Catholic, Soldiers, R.U.C., bombings. Etc. Devices left in Top Man or Top Shop, whatever, in in Queens Arcade in Belfast. Because I'm black, you see patrols in Anderson Town, and you don't see patrols out in Dunmary or East Belfast, you know, which, which have been Protestant areas. Yeah, yeah. And you see the Union Jack, you know, flying in some estates, which automatically tells you, like the KKK, like the Klan, or some areas you see, you know, young, my old Tallahassee part, Tallahassee when I was coming up, and you saw it with the riots on January the 6th. Yeah. You know, when you see a Confederate flag to some black people, you go, hmm, because the Confederate flag just tells you yeah. right there. It tells you a lot. It, like I said, it's like going through Belfast and you're here in Ireland, and if you're in your hometown of Longford and all of a sudden you saw some guys and a couple of trucks driving by or Jeeps or SUVs, and they got the Union Jacks, I'm sure everyone yes. in Longford Town would turn around and go, wait a second now, yeah. what is that about? <laughs> so I picked up and I learned things very, very quickly in Belfast in regards to what I would just say, organized crime, uh, extortion, and all that kind of stuff. But it's in the backdrop. But when you hear people that are just accosted or picked up and interned, no trial, no reason other than they may have been associated with someone else that could be an H block or in prison. You know, someone picked up in a black taxi and then all of a sudden they're, they're dropped off in the wrong place and they're yes. left there and all of a sudden they're, they're later shot or kidnapped and murdered. And, you know, it's, it's putting more fuel on the fire. It's breeding that, that hate. And depending on where you, where you, where you lived, if you don't understand, it's just like racism, if you don't understand yes. The culture, and you don't understand why some people can do what they're doing. And if you're not educated, and you don't have an understanding, and it's easy to recruit young men, women, impressionable people, yes, to take to take that bomb to to drop it there and ask no questions. When, when one of yours is kidnapped and murdered, now if you don't you don't know who did it, was it UBF, the IRA? If you don't have the facts, then it's easy to keep someone living in fear and believing the lie, which is they don't like you, they hate you. And then on the other hand, when you have people who aren't apprehended, once again, like America, and people are shot like six times as opposed to, you know, arrested. Yeah. Then you start to say, well, maybe there's a shoot to kill policy. And this, this is the thing you said where it's, it's, it's ironic, but there are parts of Irish history that is sort of similar to black Americans related to the Irish history in regards to, you know, the oppression and, uh, just, being treated fairly, really. I was talking to Chris Kamara and he was talking about how he, his family were 
like the only black family on his housing estate in Middlesbrough and about racism and you know when he said it was worse then than it is now and I was saying to him about you know about the Irish and you were talking about that that there were signs no blacks no dogs no Irish and that was the way it was and when you say that I think a lot of people with this whole Black Lives Matters and that Irish people are realising you know because for so long as you said they were oppressed Uh and they found and a lot of the time as you said you know it was shoot to kill it was not a case of giving an answer it was just straight away you know don't arrest or uh, or you said it interned without uh, a trial trial, yeah yep not not no reading of your miranda rights you you have the right to remain silent you have the right to nope none of that just straight to prison straight to jail bye and i'll be honest with you it took me some time to understand it i was like oof okay and then you understand things like one of our sponsors was, um, you know, anyone now, I think it's a, it's actually a GM sports center now, but it used to be the carry, carry in. It was in between the Lisbon Road and Anderson Town. And, um, I think he's passed away now. Noel O'Boyle would have been, uh, one of our sponsors. It was, uh, the team was sporting Belfast, but, uh, we were able to be sponsored by him. And I think later on the club picked up a, a, a drink sponsorship from, uh, I think, Team Cinetics, they were called. But, you know, one night there was a rally inside there and passed a hat. And, you know, we come up from training. Place was buzzing and it was a Thursday night. So some people got paid. But at the far back near the snooker, the snooker, there were stairs going upstairs to like a snooker hall above the, the, the pub. But there was a woman speaking, and I found out later on that that evening that it was Bobby Sands' mother. Oh, wow. You know, I was like, okay, and I never forget this. Now, the the guy's name I'm going to call now, he's a prominent, well, he used to be, he still is involved in politics, but he used to be the Attorney General of the state of Rhode Island, but he played basketball up in Belfast with us for a while, his name is Billy Lynch. And Billy just asked a couple of questions that night of the owner. Uh, no, and he sort of, uh, you know, asked this question like, uh, like, no, the carry-in is never bombed or never any threats. Like, you know, why is that? And I, at the time, this guy, now these are two people, well, one person deceased, a friend of ours, very good player with the province called, uh, Bruce Soup Campbell, Ed Randolph, a guy called Larry Williams, Billy Lynch. I'm not sure Steve O'Neill was there with us. Uh, or another guy, Boo Williams, played with team, uh, played with Anderson Town at the time, a guy called Dave Hopler. But no one looked at Billy Lynch. And I sort of cringed a bit, and I was thinking, hello, Billy. Like, why would you ask that question? I mean, you went to school at Brown University, and there was a very prominent, um, like, mob or organized crime up on a place called Federal Hill, all the way to Boston, back into New York City. But you know, the whole cartel of the Gambino family and different, uh, Raymond Patriarch and all these different sort of organized crime things, you know, crime figures for families on the East Coast. But when he asked that question to Noel about why is none of his places ever touched, hey, I don't care. Like, maybe he pays protection money, Billy, maybe he's, he knows the boys or whatever, but mm-hmm. like, we, we just, we, we used to talk about it between all of us. It's like, okay, it's like, See no evil. Speak no evil. Hear no evil. And just talking to local people there, they said, you know, in the pubs, 
we, you know, one thing, you, you shouldn't talk politics, you shouldn't talk religion. You talk about sports, anything else, but stay away from the politics and stay away from religion in the pubs because you just don't know, unless you, you definitely know that you're in yes. a, you know, a nationalist or, you know, the area where you, where you are. Interesting times in Belfast. It taught me a lot. The fact that you are for an outsider coming in, because a lot of people don't know the story about it, you have to be over here because a lot of, and even across the water in England, a lot of them aren't taught about the history and about what happened in Ireland. And the only I've heard really one version of it where there is two versions. You have two sons, Darren and Neil. Now, a lot of soccer fans would know Darren. He's uh, the current Ireland number one goalkeeper. It could have been also different for Darren because um, he played basketball very good at it but unfortunately or fortunately he decided to choose soccer early early when he first did I believe one of the coaches here Darren had played for the Irishman 16 squad and the football at that time it really started to take off as well and at you know Charlton had a link up with his, his local club here in Bray Ardmore Rovers. So they had, um, I mean, that's how Darren actually got spotted. They had a, a coaching camp here. The coaches came over from Charlton, worked with some of the coaches in Ardmore Rovers, and they had a big, uh, big football camp, soccer camp. And at the end of it, I think there was maybe two or three players that they sort of tagged that could have some potential to maybe go further. And I think about two or three weeks after that camp, he's no longer with us now. God rest his soul. Mick Powell uh, actually called, called us and said, uh, you know, I wonder could I call by the house, uh, Charlton, uh, maybe interested in Darren to come over to their academy. And we'll come down, come by the house and sit and talk to you and your wife. I said, yep, yeah, make no problem. So we talked about it and, um, that sort of started things, started, started Darren's, you know, involvement with Charlton and at different breaks. It was Halloween at school break or Christmas, a uh, midterm break. In like February, uh, summers, uh, Darren would, would start to go over for, for trips to, uh, to the academy at, at Charl- Charlton. And there's a number of Irish players there already, uh, there it was Matt Holland, Mark, Mark, uh, Kensler was there. Kinsley, yeah. And strange enough, the new goalkeeping coach, Dean Kiley, who just came into the Irish setup, he yeah. was, he was the number one keeper at Charlton and the Valley. And Darren was just, I think, 16. And Alan Kirby was the manager at Charlton. So yeah, Darren's come a long way. But yeah, we we decided to I think after fourth year because at that point, you know, he was really determined to to say you know go the route of trying to become a professional footballer. You know, basketball. Okay, he was good at it. But when you see the Premiership and you see it on TV at the time, you know, he would have seen more. Or football on TV yeah. as opposed to basketball, even though we were trying, you know, we were watching NBA games and it was videotapes here in the house and everything else. But it was, it was totally his choice. You know, we just tried to, to get him to see the pros and cons, the good and the bad of, uh, professional football. And that, uh, if you're going to do it, you've, you've got to sort of do it right and understand the sacrifice that you have to make and the commitment and all that kind of stuff. So, and then education, because we always wanted him to, yeah. if someone went wrong, you got an injury, you need to fall back on. You need to fall back on something. You need to have something there, which is your qualifications. You know, if you didn't do your leaving cert, a couple of A levels, O levels to uh, to go on to university. You know, so Charlton was a bit about that. They had a um, 
a child welfare officer, and they lived in a dig, a house where all the boys were. I think it was like seven or eight boys in the one house. They were upstairs, and um, there were other boys, but they were local, so they would they would live at home, but they would still be in the academy. And I think it was Darren. There was a kid from France. There was two guys, I think, from either the Congo or Nigeria. Because there was one kid from Northern Ireland, and I think. The kids in France. So they're all in the house, and then they had to go to school. They had their jumpers and stuff. The the child officer was very honest with us, and you know he said, "Well, look, if the football really starts to take off, then you know they're going to be in Darius' case, going to be up with the reserve team or the under 18 squad." And in a very short time, I think by the time Darren turned 15 and a half, 16, he was up with the under 18, and he had played a couple of reserve games, and he was out on loan with one of the local conference teams, I think Bromley in, in southeast London. As you do, learning your trade or learning his trade. It's amazing what happened and look at him now. Neil, he played basketball himself. Mm-hmm. Neil is what we would call uh, a blue chip, you know, a late bloomer. Played getting football. Early on would have would have been putting goals or putting nets and really didn't want to. He wanted to get out and do his own thing. But when you have an older brother who's a goalkeeper or who's yes. good at this or that, then everyone starts to, you know, compare. Yeah. You know, so Neil would have been in in the shadows, so to speak, of from asking, uh, you know, how much money your brother makes to can you get an autograph or you go in goals. But um, I'd say going into his senior year, you see, yeah, senior year press break, Neil started to find his own way. And I say probably from going to basketball camps from small lad of 10, lived in the gym, was always bouncing the ball. And, uh, he, he sort of got away from his, 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 uh, you know, his Super Mario PlayStation or the Xbox later on and then really started to play more and more ball, more basketball. And by the time he came into his senior year, he was like, out of the blue one day, I want to go to the States on a scholarship. <laughs> I was like, you're kidding. Because all this time you have me, you heard, you've heard me talk about it. Our club team, Dublin Raiders, we've taken uh, kids over to the states back and forth. Neil's gone over a couple of times, and he's, he's you know he didn't show any interest. You know he just one of those you know on the side shooting, he could have you know take it or leave it type attitude. So needless to say, Denise, I went about making phone calls, and the first thing I said, I look, go online. You got to get the Bible, and he goes, "What are you talking about the Bible?" I said, "Sorry, you got to get the SAT and the ACT manual." It's a thick, thick book, about as thick as, you know, the Bible. And you got to start taking sample SAT and ACT exams. And because athletically, we only take it so far. You need to get, you know, some type of found way because unless you get a scholarship or something, we, we're not going to mortgage the house or take out a second mortgage to put you through uh, college, whatever else. I mean, you can talk to your older brother. Maybe he might give you a loan, but mm-hmm. it costs it costs, you know, anywhere from fifty, sixty thousand a year to go to to go to university in America. If you want to do this, there you go. You're gonna to have to get out and start running and whatever you're doing now, you're gonna to have to double it, quadruple it. You gotta really want it. You gotta want it so bad that you almost taste it. It it becomes an obsession, Neil. You you eat, sleep and drink it. And all the conversations you heard talking to Darren about professional sports and everything else and learning, you know, the business of being a professional and dedicating yourself, it starts now. And you're going into your, you know, your sixth year, and there's something called a leaving cert, yeah. which you, you know your mother's going to want you to do your leaving cert. It's not like 
So anyway, he did, and we ended up, um, a friend of a friend, getting him into a what's called a prep school down in Florida, which is good, because I'm from Florida. I had a sister, maybe an hour and a half drive from where Neil was. She, my sister Gloria was in uh, Gainesville, and um, Arlington Country Day was a uh, prep school right in Jacksonville. A cousin of mine, along with another friend, had looked at the school, and they, was, you know, they gave us a good report. They were honest. I ended up talking to the coach there at the time, who was, he's now deceased, a guy called uh, Rex, Rex Morgan, and he had actually played for the Boston Celtics, and uh, it was a, a max prep uh, prep school, and they had won a couple of state championships. And they had been slapped on the wrist, too, for not, you know, not following high school rules, which sort of put one or two flags for me, because you want to make sure that your, your, your child or your son or your daughter is going into a good situation, and the people that you're you know, you, you, you put in your trust and these people look after you or your son or your daughter. Arlington Country Day sort of made Neil because it is a type of situation where every kid there wants to get a scholarship. They only got one year to prove it. And um, two or three of the guys right now that would, would have been with Neil at Arlington, they're, they're in the NBA or they're, they're, they're playing overseas. He was Canada's and Turkish International, but he played for Kentucky, but he was ineligible because he actually played before in, I think, uh, Istanbul, for local club in Turkey. But his younger brother, uh, Kareem Cantor, would have been Neil's roommate. He was only, he would have been 15 and a half at the time, and 16, and, and Neil would have been older than him, so he was like a, Neil was a good friend with him. And there was like three other guys from Ivory Coast, Congo, Nigeria, and they were all 6'11", 6'11", two guys from Puerto Rico, couple other guys from Washington, D.C., and all these kids are there. Weekends, they'd be playing tournaments. That was Neil, and he did very, very well. And, um, you know, he wasn't off any scholarships, but there were a couple of schools that were willing to take Neil because academically he did quite well. And one of those schools was Elmira College. It's a liberal arts college. And it's really famous for Mark Twain. The next reason it's famous because it was one of the first colleges in America to allow women to go really? to university. Elmira College, upstate New York. After we finished, we flew over and we went to Gainesville to visit my sister. We spent some time in Florida with family and everyone. And then we, uh, we flew up to New York, picked up a rental car, and we drove Neil all the way. I think it was about a four and a half hour drive from New York City to, uh, uh, sort of the, it's called the Finger Lake District. And then the, the lakes up there, they all feed from Niagara Falls. So New York upstate, it's a beautiful state. And um, it's a nice college, very quiet town. Neil liked it. He had four great years there. Ended up being a thousand point score. Um, he did very well because one of the stipulations in getting the financial aid, it wasn't a full scholarship, but he had to maintain uh, was called like a three point, and that was worth every year around twenty thousand U.S. dollars. And then he worked giving tours around the college, and then he worked in the cafeteria. Which I, I said to him, I said, if you can, if you get your work study, you want to work inside the cafeteria. And he goes, why? I said, because that way you get the free food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to be smart. By the time he, he went after two years college, he. He uh, ended up getting what's called a resident assistant, which means you're in the dorms and you're part of the administration of housing. So you actually help police or administer the dorms. He was made, he was a psychology major, 
So after that, Neil finished up. We all went to his graduation back to um, Ireland, and very next year he applied, and he went to do a master's at uh, Northumbria in Newcastle, where he did a master's, and he played basketball again for uh, Northumbria, and um, came back. He applied for Bank of Ireland graduate program. There you go. And so Neil is on his way to be an accountant and uh, working in the Bank of Ireland. Basketball in Ireland, I know you've done coaching and you help out in schools and that. How have you found it over the last number of years? I suppose you're, you're always watching it or you're always keeping a close eye on the game. Basketball is making some, I mean, like some very, very significant improvements. I think, I mean, just recently there was a, there's been, uh, at least in the south side of Dublin where I live now, there is, uh, just recently advertised a job for a development officer. And I'll be honest with you, before I go into basketball history, the lockdown has really, really hurt uh, basketball because it's an indoor sport. It's a minority sport, and we just haven't been able to to get out. It was fine because, you know, we did get the green light to go and train outside. There's just not enough outdoor facilities, outdoor courts. If you're a club, you have to get out there with your rake or your, you know, shovel or whatever. you got to scrape off all the the algae or the moss because if a kid slips on that you know your public liability insurance you know you can have a possible claim and depending on the area you know if you have anti-social behavior there might be broken glass or bottles or whatever you know so basketball's really been hurt but on the positive side uh basketball island we moved in the right direction with highlighting uh you know european teams getting back into competition uh, there was a very good under-18 girls team a couple of years ago, did it well. They went all the way to the final and they lost. And in the grassroots, we're back on track with development squads at different levels and in different parts of the country. From Donegal to, you know, Kerry, Cork, Waterford, and Longford, the Midlands there, Mullingar, mm-hmm. Athlone, they're, they're, they're basketball development squads. Yeah, we're moving in the right direction. I think the next thing would be we need to go back to exposure in regards to possibly TV. Yes. Even if it's a local type, a local cable where you can actually talk to, demonstrate different drills so everyone becomes familiar with the lingo. The next thing that I think your listeners should be aware of is that the GAA or Gaelic football and basketball are sort of joined at the hip. Yeah. Uh, when I say that, I mean, there is a number of high profile, uh, men and ladies who have played yeah. basketball and Gaelic football. Uh, I mentioned an under 18 team that did really well. That particular team had a young lady. She is a county player from Mayo, Dana McGraw. That's another very good player from that, uh, team. Um, Claire Amelia. She's from Port Leash. There's another girl now called uh, Brona Paracassi, who is a bit of a you know, getting football and basketball player. And then you have probably well-known, if you take Lindsay Peet, yes. who plays rugby now for Ireland. I first saw Lindsay Peet when she was like 16, playing with the ladies' team or a club there in Artane. You know, and then on the other hand, you would have had Liam McHale play for yes. Ballinard, the Stephen Knights. Kieran Donaghy. Kieran Donaghy now, and he does a great job because as you know he has a podcast as well and yeah. he uh, he speaks very highly about you know basketball and he flies a, flies a flag for basketball 
a couple of the Mayo guys, uh, the Gary, he's all played basketball, Polish, they played basketball. So Gaelic football and basketball, they do complement each other. But unfortunately, that's where it stops. You know, basketball wouldn't get half, even a third of the funding that, that, uh, See, Gaelic guess, would yeah. get, or, or Gaelic sports. But, you know, having said that, just like the GAA, there are a lot of uh, volunteers, there are a lot of people involved in basketball, and, you know, there are a lot of uh, schools that actually, you know, hire out their halls to basketball clubs. And that's another reason why basketball has really been hurt by the whole COVID, the pandemic. You know, but I know for a fact, and talking to parents, especially those who have parents of boys and girls who are really active, you know, they, these kids, their mental health, you know, have, has, has suffered. You know, they just... They just got to get out or they want to get out and they're just, they're definitely frustrated. Exactly. If you had advice to give to young people starting off in basketball from all oh. your years, what would you say to them? Well, the most important, important thing is have fun. And this is something I told my own kids and some of the kids mm-hmm. I coach. Have fun, enjoy it. Because if it goes in the direction of the next level, uh, you know, say, say a representative team, even a development squad, whatever. That's when a little bit more pressure comes, and some of the sometimes the fun may go out of it for you because the demands the demands will increase. But try to have fun. Number one, number two, make sure that you key in on what we call the fundamentals of of the game, whether it's hockey, whether it's camogie, rugby, whatever. You need to have good footwork. You need to have battles for that footwork, agility. You know, your peripheral vision, if you're playing camogie or hurling, you got the helmet on and the ball's coming at you. You know, it takes a lot of practice to be able to go up, to feel the ball, to catch a ball, and to also see, can I volley this ball like volleyball? Can I pat the ball down to someone who could actually catch the ball on a run and head towards, you know, turn, turn, turn a, 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 an attack, uh, an attacking position or a break, you know, a breaking ball, anticipate and then get it, you know, don't get caught on the counter and get back on the position, play defense. So make sure that they try to become, become fundamentally sound, catching, fielding, hitting, striking, running, jumping, left hand, right hand. It's all important. Balance, you know, your footwork, agility. And that comes back to another thing that I'm sort of passionate about, which is actually physical education in school. Because a lot of times we get our kids and we get a little bit too late and we have to actually try to turn them into yes. uh, some athletes we have to work on. We have to work on that balance and, and, you know, footwork and agility and power and speed and endurance and stamina we're making we made great strides in that too because there is now leaving cert there's a leaving cert PE program and we have a junior cert and there's strands inside the junior cert uh, PE and also inside the leaving cert for those kids who are interested in doing physical education now there's an option there for them which is great do you know what I could listen to you all day and please God when supporters get back to grounds that and more journalists get back that I'll be able to hopefully bump into you one day at the Aviva your story is so interesting Ed and it was lovely speaking to you Denise thank you very very much you're very kind